Section 6 of Salt Mines and Castles by Thomas Carr Howe. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by T.R. Love of Pleasant Hill, California. Loot Underground, the Salt Mine at Alt Aussie. It was nearly two o'clock by the time we were ready to start. I was now so familiar with the road between Munich and Salzburg that I felt like a commuter. Just outside Salzburg, Lamont began looking for signs that would lead us to a quartermaster depot. He finally caught sight of one, and after following a devious route which took us several miles off the main road, we found the depot. We were issued two compact and very heavy wooden boxes bound with metal strips. We dumped them on the floor of the command car and drove on into town. Across the river, we picked up a secondary road which led out of the city in a southeasterly direction. For some miles, it wound through hills so densely wooded that we could see but little of the country. Then, emerging from the Tunnel of Evergreens, we skirted Fuchelsee, the first of the lovely alpine lakes in that region. Somewhere along its shores, we had been told, Ribbentrop had had a castle. It was being used now as a recreation center for American soldiers. Our road led into more rugged country. We continued to climb, and with each curve of the road, the scenery became more spectacular. After an hour's drive, we reached St. Gilgen, its neat white houses and picturesque church spire silhouetted against the blue waters of St. Wolfgang Sea. Then on past the village of Strobel, and finally into the crooked streets of Bad Ischl, where the old emperor Franz Josef had spent so many summers. From Bad Ischl, our road ribboned through Laufen and Goisern to St. Agatha. Beyond St. Agatha lay the Pushten Pass. The road leading up to it was a series of hairpin turns and dangerous grades. As we ground slowly up the last steep stretch to the summit, I wondered what route George was using for his convoys from the mine. Surely not this one. Large trucks couldn't climb that interminable grade. I found out later that this was the only road to Alt Asi. On the other side of the pass, the road descended gradually into a rolling valley, and in another half hour, we clattered into the narrow main street of Bad Asi. From there, it was only a few miles to Alt Asi. Midway between the two villages, we hoped to find the house of our OSS friends. We came upon it unexpectedly, around a sharp bend in the road. It was a tall, gabled villa, built in the gingerbread style of fifty years ago. Having pictured a romantic chalet tucked away in the mountains, I was disappointed by this rather commonplace suburban structure, standing behind a stout iron fence with padlocked gates, within a stone's throw of the main highway. Jim and Ted received us hospitably and took us to an upper veranda with wicker chairs and a table immaculately set for dinner. We were joined by a wiry young lieutenant colonel named Harold S. Davitt, who bore a pronounced resemblance to the Duke of Windsor. He was the commanding officer of a battalion of the 11th Armored Division stationed at Alt Asi, the little village just below the mine. Colonel Davitt's men constituted the security guard at the mine. 
He knew and admired our friend George Stout. It was strange and pleasant to be again in an atmosphere of well-ordered domesticity. To us it seemed rather a fine point when one of our hosts rebuked the waitress for serving the wine in the wrong kind of glasses. During dinner we noticed a man pacing about the garden below. He was Walter Andreas Hoffer, who had been Goering's agent and advisor in art matters. A shrewd and enterprising Berlin dealer before the war, Hofer had succeeded in ingratiating himself with the Reich Marshal. He, more than any other single individual, had been responsible for shaping Goering's taste and had played a stellar role in building up his priceless collection of old masters. Some of his methods had been ingenious. He was credited with having devised the system of birthday gifts, a scheme whereby important objects were added to the collection at no cost to the Reich Marshal. Each year before Goering's birthday on January 12th, Hofer wrote letters to wealthy industrialists and businessmen suggesting that the Reich Marshal would be gratified to receive a token of their continued regard for him. Then he would designate a specific work of art and the prize. More often than not, the piece in question had already been acquired. The prospective donor had only to foot the bill. Now and then the victim of this shakedown protested the price, but he usually came through. In Hofer, the Reich Marshal had had a henchman as rapacious and greedy as himself, and Hofer had possessed what his master lacked, a wide knowledge of European collections and the international art market. Goering had been a gold mine, and Hoffer had made the most of it. Hoffer had been arrested shortly after the close of hostilities. He had been a guest at House 71 for some weeks now, and was being grilled daily by our cloak-and-dagger boys. They were probing into his activities of the past few years, and had already extracted an amazing lot of information for incorporation into the exhaustive report on the Gehring collection and how it grew. Hoffer was just one of a long procession of witnesses who were being questioned by Plout and Rossau in the course of their tireless investigation of the artistic depredations of the top Nazis. These OSS officers knew their business. With infinite patience, they were cross-examining their witnesses and gradually extracting information which was to lend an authentic fascination to their reports. Hoffer's wife, they told us, had ably assisted her husband. Her talents as an expert restorer had been useful. She had been charged with the technical care of the Goering collection, no small job when one stopped to consider that it numbered over a thousand pictures. Indeed, there had been more than enough work to keep one person busy all the time. We learned that Frau Hofer was living temporarily at Berchtesgaden, where, until recently, she had been allowed to attend to emergency repairs on some of the Goering pictures there. We turned back to the subject of Hofer, who had not yet finished his daily constitutional and could be seen still pacing back and forth below us. He was, they said, a voluble witness and had an extraordinary memory. He could recall minute details of complicated transactions which had taken place several years before. 
On one occasion, Hoffer had recommended an exchange of half a dozen paintings of secondary importance for two of the very first quality. As I recall, the deal involved a group of 17th century Dutch pictures on the one hand and two berchers on the others. Hoffer had been able to reel off the names of all of them and even give the price of each. It was just such feats of memory, they said with a laugh, that made his vague and indefinite answers to certain other questions seem more than merely inconsistent. Listening to our house, we had forgotten the time. It was getting late, and George would be wondering what had happened to us. There had been a heavy downpour while we were at dinner. The weather had cleared now, but the evergreens were dripping as we pulled out of the drive. The road to Altasse ran along beside the swift and milky waters of an alpine river. It was a beautiful drive in the soft evening light. The little village with its winding streets and brightly painted chalets was an odd setting for G.I.s and jeeps, to say nothing of our lumbering command car. We found our way to the command post, which occupied a small hotel in the center of the village. There we turned sharply to the right, into a road so steep that made the precipitous grades over which we had come earlier that afternoon seem level by comparison. We drove about a mile on this road, and I was beginning to wonder if we wouldn't soon be above the timber line, perhaps even in the region of eternal snow, to which Roger had once so poetically referred, when we came to a bleak stone building perched precariously on a narrow strip of level ground. Behind it, a thousand feet below, stretched an unbroken sea of deep pine forests. This was the control post, and the guard, a burly G.I. armed with a rifle, signaled us to stop. We asked for Lieutenant Stout. He motioned up the road, where, in the gathering dusk, we could distinguish the outlines of a low building facing an irregular terrace. It was a distance of about 200 yards. We drove on up to the entrance where we found George waiting for us. He took us into the building, which he said contained the administrative offices of the salt mine, the Steinbergwerke, now a government monopoly, and his own living quarters. We entered a kind of vestibule with white plaster walls and a cement floor, a narrow track the rails of which were not more than 18 inches apart, led from the entrance to a pair of heavy doors in the far wall. That, said George, is the entrance to the mine. He led the way to a room on the second floor. Its most conspicuous feature was a large porcelain stove. The woodwork was knotty pine. Aside from the two single beds, the only furniture was a built-in settle with a writing table which filled one corner. The table had a red and white check cover, and over it, suspended from the ceiling, was an adjustable lamp with a red and white check shade. Opening off this room was another bedroom, also pine-paneled, which was occupied by the captain of the guard and one other officer. George apologized for the fact that the only entrance to the other room was through ours. Apparently, in the old days, the two rooms had formed a suite ours having been the sitting room, reserved for important visitors to the mine. 
For the first few days there was so much coming and going that we had all the privacy of Grand Central Station, but we soon got used to the traffic. George and Steve Kovalyak shared a room just down the hall. Lamont had spoken of Steve when we had been at Hohenfurth, and I was curious to meet this newcomer to the MFA and A ranks. George said that Steve would be back before long. He had gone out with Shrady. That was Lieutenant Frederick Shrady, the third member of the trio of Monuments officers at the mine. While Lamont and I were getting our things unpacked, George sat and talked to us about the work at the mine and what he expected us to do. As he talked, he soaked his hand in his helmet liner filled with hot water. He had skinned one of his knuckles and an infection had set in. The doctors wanted to bring the thing to a head before lancing it the next day. I had noticed earlier that one of his hands looked red and swollen, but George hadn't said anything about it. As he was not one to relish solicitous inquiries, I refrained from making any comment. George outlined the local situation briefly. The principal bottleneck in the operation lay in the selection of the stuff which was to be brought out of the various mine chambers. There were, he said, something like 10,000 pictures stored in them, to say nothing of sculpture, furniture, tapestries, rugs, and books. At the moment, he was concentrating on the pictures, and he wanted to get the best of them out first. The less important ones, particularly the works of the 19th century German painters, whom Hitler admired so much, could wait for later removal. He and Steve and Schrady had their hands full above ground. That left only Sieber, the German restorer, who had been at the mine ever since it had been converted into an art repository, to choose the paintings down below. In addition, Sieber had to supervise the other subterranean operations, which included carrying the paintings from the storage racks, dividing them into groups according to size, and padding the corners so that the canvases wouldn't rub together on the way up to the mine entrance. Where we could be of real help would be down in the mine chambers, picking out the cream of the pictures and getting them up topside. George's vocabulary was peppered with nautical expressions. In the midst of his deliberate recital, we heard a door slam. The chorus of Giannina Mia, sung in a piercingly melodic baritone, echoed from the stairs. Steve's home, said George. A second later, there was a knock on the door, and the owner of the voice materialized. Steve looked a bit startled when he caught sight of two strange faces, but he grinned good-naturedly as George introduced us. "'I thought you were going out on the town with Shrady tonight,' said George. "'No,' said Steve. "'I left him down in the village and came back to talk to Cress.' Cress was an expert photographer who had been with the Castle Museum before the war. He had been captured when our troops took over at the mine just as the war ended. Since Steve's arrival, he had been his personal P.W., Steve was an enthusiastic amateur and had acquired all kinds of photographic equipment. Cress, we gathered, was showing him how to use it. Their conversations were something of a mystery because Steve knew no German, Cress no English. I use my high German laddies, 
Steve would say with a crafty grin and a lift of the eyebrows as he teetered on the balls of his feet. We came to the conclusion that High German was so called because it transcended all known rules of grammar and pronunciation. But for the two of them, it worked. Steve, stocky, gruff, and belligerent, and Cress, timid, beady-eyed, and patient, would spend hours together. They were a comical pair. Steve was always in command and very much the captor. Cress was long-suffering and had a kind of dog-like devotion to his master, whose alternating jocular and tyrannical moods he seemed to accept with equanimity and understanding. But all this we learned later. That first evening, while George went on with his description of the work, Steve sat quietly appraising Lamont and me with his keen, gray-green eyes. He had worked with Lamont at Berntorode, so I was his main target. Now and then, he would look over at George and throw in a remark. Between the two, there existed an extraordinary bond. As far as Steve was concerned, George was perfect, and Steve had no use for anyone who thought otherwise. If, at the end of a hard day, he occasionally beefed about George and his merciless perfection, well, that was Steve's prerogative. For his part, George had a fatherly affection for Steve and a quiet admiration for his energy and resourcefulness and the way he handled the men under him. Presently, Steve announced that it was late and went off to bed. I wondered if he had sized me up. There was a flicker of amusement in Lamont's eyes, and I guessed that he was wondering the same thing. When George got up to go, he said, You'll find hot water down in the kitchen in the morning. Breakfast will be at 7.30. Steve roused us early with a knock on the door and said he'd show us the way to the kitchen. We rolled out, painfully conscious of the cold mountain air. Below, in the warm kitchen, the sun was pouring in through the open door. There were still traces of snow on the mountaintops. The highest peak, Steve said, was looser. Its snowy cornet glistened in the bright morning light. When my eyes became accustomed to the glare, I noticed that there were several other people in the kitchen. One of them, a wrinkled little fellow wearing lederhosen and white socks, was standing by the stove. Steve saluted them cheerfully with a wave of his towel. They acknowledged his greeting with good-natured nods and gruff monosyllables. These curious mountain people, he said, belonged to families that had worked in the mine for 500 years. They were working for us now, as members of his evacuation crew. We washed at a row of basins along one wall. Above them hung a sign lettered with the homely motto, Not der Arbeit vor dem Essen. Hände waschen, nicht vergessen. It rang a poignant bell in my memory. That same admonition to wash before eating had hung in the little pension at nearby Grundelsee, where I had spent a summer fifteen years ago. Our mess hall was in the guardhouse down the road, the square stone building where the sentry had challenged us the night before. We lined up with our plates, and when they had been heaped with scrambled eggs, helped ourselves to toast, jam, and coffee, and sat down at a long wooden table in the adjoining room. George was finishing his breakfast as the three of us came in. 
With him was Lieutenant Schrady, who had recently been commissioned a monuments officer at Bad Homburg. Subsequently, he had been sent down to Alt-Ossi by Captain Posey. He was a lean, athletic, good-looking fellow. Although he helped occasionally with the loading, his primary duties at the mine were of an administrative nature, handling the workmen's payrolls through the local military government detachment, obtaining their food rations, making inspections in the area, filing reports, and so on. After he and George had left, Steve told us that Schrady was a portrait painter. Right now, he was working on a portrait of his civilian interpreter secretary, who, according to Steve, was something rather special in the way of Viennese beauty. This was a new slant on the work at the mine, and I was curious to know more about the glamorous Maria, whom Steve described as being beaucoup beautiful. But George was waiting to take us down into the mine. As we walked up the road, Steve explained to us that the miners worked in two shifts, one crew from four in the morning until midday, another from noon until eight in the evening. The purpose of the early morning shift was to maintain an uninterrupted flow of stuff from the mine so that the daytime loading of the trucks would not bog down for lack of cargo. At the building in which the mine entrance was located, we found George with a group of the miners. It was just eight o'clock, and the day's work was starting. We were introduced to two men dressed in white uniforms, which gave them an odd hybrid appearance, a cross between a street cleaner and a musical comedy hussar. This outfit consisted of a white duck jacket and trousers. The jacket had a wide, cape-like collar reaching to the shoulder, Two rows of ornamental black buttons converging at the waistline adorned the front of the jacket, and a similar row ran up the sleeves from cuff to elbow. In place of a belt, the jacket was held in place by a taped drawstring. A black garrison cap completed the costume. The two men were Carl Sieber, the restorer, and Max Eder, an engineer from Vienna. It was Eder's job to list the contents of each truck. Perched on a soapbox, he sat all day at the loading entrance, record book and paper before him on a makeshift desk. He wrote down the number of each object as it was carried through the door to the truck outside. The truck list was made in duplicate. The original was sent to Munich with the convoy. The copy was kept at the mine to be incorporated in the permanent records which Lieutenant Schrady was compiling in his office on the floor above. In the early days of their occupancy, the Nazis had recorded the loot piece by piece as it entered the mine. The records were voluminous and filled many ledgers, but during the closing months of the war, such quantities of loot had poured in that the system had broken down. Instead of a single accession number, an object was sometimes given a number which merely indicated with what shipment it had arrived. Occasionally, there would be several numbers on a single piece. Frequently, a piece would have no number at all. In spite of this confusion, Eder managed somehow to produce orderly lists. If the information they contained was not always definitive, it was invariably accurate. George was anxious to get started. It's cold down in the mine, he said. You'd better put on the warmest things you brought with you. 
How cold is it? I asked. Forty degrees Fahrenheit, he said. The temperature doesn't vary appreciably during the year. I believe it rises to 47 in the winter, and the humidity is equally constant, about 65 percent. That's why this particular salt mine was chosen as a repository, as you probably know. While we went up to get our jackets and mufflers, George ordered Sieber to hitch up the train. When we returned, we noticed that the miners, who resembled a troop of Walt Disney dwarves, were wearing heavy sweaters and thick woolen jackets for protection against the subterranean cold. The train's locomotion was provided by a small gasoline engine with narrow running boards on either side, which afforded foothold for the operator. Attached to it were half a dozen miniature flat carts, or dollies. The miners called them hunda, that is, dogs. They were about five feet long, and on them were placed heavy wooden boxes approximately two feet wide. The sides were roughly two feet high. Following George's example, we piled a couple of blankets on the bottom of one of the boxes and squeezed ourselves in. Each box, with judicious crowding, would accommodate two people facing each other. At a signal from Sieber, who was sardined into a boxcar with George, one of the gnomes primed the engine. After a couple of false starts, it began to chug, and the train rumbled into the dim cavern ahead. For the first few yards, the irregular walls were whitewashed, but we soon entered a narrow tunnel cut through the natural rock. It varied in height and width. In some places, there would be overhead clearance of seven or eight feet and a foot or more on either side. In others, the passageway was just wide enough for the train and the jagged rocks above seemed menacingly close. There were electric lights in part of the tunnel, but these were strung at irregular intervals. They shed a dim glow on the moist walls. George shouted that we would stop first at the Kaiser Josef mine. The track branched, and a few minutes later, we stopped beside a heavy iron door set in the wall of the passageway. This part of the tunnel was not illuminated, so carbide lights were produced. By their flickering light, George found the keyhole and unlocked the door. We followed him into the unlighted mine chamber, Flashlights supplemented the wavering flames of the miners' lamps. Ahead of us, we could make out row after row of huge packing cases. Beyond them was a broad wooden platform. The rays of our flashlights revealed a bulky object resting on the center of the platform. We came closer. We could see that it was a statue, a marble statue, and then we knew it was Michelangelo's Madonna from Bruges, one of the world's great masterpieces. The light of our lamps played over the soft folds of Madonna's robe, the delicate modeling of the face. Her grave eyes looked down, seemed only half aware of the sturdy child nestling close against her, one hand firmly held in hers. It is one of the earliest works of the great sculptor and one of his loveliest the incongruous setting of the bare boards served only to enhance its gentle beauty. The statue was carved by Michelangelo in 1501, when he was only 26. 
It was bought from the sculptor by the Mascron brothers of Bruges, who presented it to the Church of Notre Dame early in the 16th century. There it had remained until September 1944, when the Germans, using the excuse that it must be saved from the American barbarians, carried it off. In the early days of the war, the statue had been removed from its traditional place in the chapel of the Blessed Sacrament to a specially built shelter in another part of the church. The shelter was not sealed, so visitors could see the statue on request. Then one afternoon in September 1944, the Bishop of Bruges, prompted by the suggestion of a German officer that the statue was not adequately protected, ordered the shelter bricked up. That night, before his orders could be carried out, German officers arrived at the church and demanded that the dean hand over the statue. With an armed crew standing by, they removed it from the shelter, dumped it onto a mattress on the floor of a Red Cross lorry, and drove away. At the same time, they perpetrated another act of vandalism. They took with them eleven paintings belonging to the church. Among them were works by Gerard David, Van Dyck, and Caravaggio. The statue and the pictures were brought to the Aldossi mine. It was a miracle that the two lorries, with their precious cargo, got through safely, for the roads were being constantly strafed by Allied planes. Now we were about to prepare the Madonna for the trip back. This time she would have more than a mattress for protection. In the same mine chamber with the Michelangelo was another plundered masterpiece of sculpture, an ancient Greek sarcophagus from Salonica. It had been excavated only a few years ago and was believed to date from the 6th century B.C. Already the Greek government was clamoring for its return. On our way back to the train, George said that the other cases, the ones we had seen when we first went into the Kaiser Josef mine, contained the dismantled panels of the Millionen Zimmer and the Kinanicious cabinet from Schönbrunn. The Altasi mine, he said, had been originally selected by the Viennese as a depot for Austrian works of art, which accounted for the panels being there. They had been brought to the mine in 1942. Then, a year later, the Nazis took it over as a repository for the collections of the proposed Führer Museum at Linz. We boarded the train again and rumbled along a dark tunnel to the mineral cabinet, one of the smaller mine chambers. Again, there was an iron door to be unlocked. We walked through a vestibule into a low-ceilinged room about 20 feet square. The walls were light partitions of unfinished lumber. Ranged about them were panels of the great Ghent altarpiece, the Adoration of the Mystic Lamb, their jewel-like beauty undimmed after 500 years. The colors were as resplendent as the day they were painted by Hubert and Jan van Eyck in 1432. This famous altarpiece, the greatest single treasure of Belgium, had also been seized by the Germans. One of the earliest examples of oil painting, it consisted originally of 12 panels, eight of which were painted on both sides. It was planned as a giant triptych of four central panels with four panels at either side. 
The matching side panels were designed to fold together like shutters over a window. Therefore, they were painted on both sides. I knew something of the history of the altarpiece. It belonged originally to the Cathedral of St. Bavon in Ghent. Early in the 19th century, the wings had been purchased by Edward Solly, an Englishman living in Germany. In 1816, he sold them to the King of Prussia, and they were placed in the Berlin Museum. There they had remained until restored to Belgium by the terms of the Versailles Treaty. From 1918 on, the entire triptych was again in the Cathedral of St. Bavon. In 1933, the attention of the world was drawn to the altarpiece when the panel in the lower left-hand corner was stolen. This was one of the panels painted on both sides. The obverse represented the Knights of Christ, the reverse, St. John the Baptist. According to the story, the thief sent the cathedral authorities an anonymous letter demanding a large sum of money and guarantee of his immunity for the return of the panels. As proof that the panels were in his possession, he is said to have returned the reverse panel with his extortion letter. The authorities agreed to these terms, but sought to lay a trap for the culprit. Their attempt was unsuccessful, and nothing was heard of the panel until a year or so later. On his deathbed, the thief, one of the beetles of the cathedral, confessed his guilt. As he lay dying, he managed to gasp, You will find the panel, but he got no further. The panel has never been found. In May 1940, the Belgians entrusted the altarpiece to France for safekeeping. Packed in ten cases, it was stored in the Chateau of Pau, together with many important works of art from the Louvre. The director of the French National Museums, mindful of his grave responsibilities, obtained explicit guarantees from the Germans that these treasures would be left inviolate. By the terms of this agreement, confirmed by the Vichy Ministry of Fine Arts, the Ghent altar was not to be moved without the joint consent of the director of the French National Museums, the mayor of Ghent, and the German Organization for the Protection of French Monuments. Notwithstanding this contract, the director of the French National Museums learned quite by accident in August 1942 that the altarpiece had just been taken to Paris. Dr. Ernst Buchner, who was director of the Bavarian State Museums, in company with three other German officers, had gone to Pau the day before with a truck and ordered the director of the museums there to hand over the retable. A telegram from M. Bonnard, Vichy Minister of Fine Arts, arriving simultaneously, reinforced Dr. Buchner's demands. Nothing was known of its destination or whereabouts beyond the fact that it had been taken to Paris. There the matter rested until the summer of 1944, with the arrival of Allied armies on French soil Reports of missing masterpieces were received by our MFA&A officers. The Ghent altarpiece was among them. But there were no clues as to where it had gone. Months passed, and by the time our troops had approached Germany, our monuments officers, all similarly briefed with photographs and other pertinent data concerning stolen works of art, began to hear rumors about the lamb. It might be in the Rhine fortress of Ehrenbreitstein, 
Perhaps it had been taken to the Bergdorf at Birchtesgaden, or perhaps to Karenhall, Goering's palatial estate near Berlin. And then again it might have been flown out of the country altogether to one of the neutral countries, Spain or Switzerland. Captain Posey and Private Lincoln Kirsten picked up additional rumors from museum directors in Luxembourg. They had heard that the altarpiece was in a salt mine, but they had also been told that it was in the vaults of the Berlin Reichsbank. It was impossible to reconcile these conflicting pieces of information. Finally, near Trier, Posey and Kirsten tracked down a young German scholar who had been in France during the occupation. Lincoln told me later that it was hard to believe that this unassuming fellow had been high in the confidence of Goering and other members of the Nazi inner circle. From him they learned that the altarpiece had been taken to Alt-Aussie. Then followed the rapid advance across Germany. To Posey and Kirstein, it was a period of agonizing suspense. They couldn't be sure that Third Army would move into the area in which the mine lay. Just as their hopes began to fade, occupancy of the cherished area did fall to Third Army. Tactical troops were alerted to the importance of the isolated mountain region. It was of no significance as a military objective and would doubtless otherwise have been left unoccupied for the moment. They pressed forward through Bad Ischl and the wild confusion of capitulating German troops to the wilder confusion of surrendering SS units in the little village of Alt-Assi itself. From there, it was but a mile to the mine. When they reached the mine, they found it heavily guarded by men of the 80th Infantry Division, but the mine had been dynamited. It was impossible to go into the mine chambers. Armed with acetylene lamps, Posey and Lincoln entered the main tunnel. They groped their way along the damp passageway for a distance of a quarter of a mile or more before they reached the debris of the first block. After assessing the damage, they returned to consult the Austrian mine workers. The miners said it would take from ten days to two weeks to clear the passageway. Captain Posey thought that the Army engineers could do it in less than a week, perhaps in two or three days. Both were wrong. They entered the first mine chamber the next day. And now, here before us, stood the fabulous panels which they had found on that May morning a few weeks before. While we examined them, Sieber pieced out the one gap in the story of the altarpiece. The Nazis had taken it from Paris to the castle of Neuschwanstein, where a restorer from Munich worked on the blisters which had developed on some of the panels. The altarpiece remained at the castle for two years. It was brought to the mine in the summer of 1944. Pieces of wax paper were still affixed to the surface of the panels on places where the blisters had been laid. The big panel representing St. John had split lengthwise with the grain of wood. This had happened at the mine. Sieber had repaired it, and George said he had done a good job. As we were leaving the mineral cabinet, Sieber asked me if Andrew Mellon really had offered $10 million for the altarpiece. People had said so in Berlin. I hated to tell him that the story was without foundation, so far as I knew. When we came out of the mine at noon, we found that Steve and Schrady had finished loading two trucks. 
They said they had enough pictures left to fill two more. The afternoon crew would be coming on at four. In the meantime, it was up to Lamont and me to select at least 200 paintings so that the loading could go on without interruption. End of section six.